The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss some of the mysteries of the Sky Clock. And what are we talking about? Well, you always hear me speak about uh, the energetic principles involved with various aspects of uh, what we would call, I guess, astrology or astronomy, uh, the position of the, the planets and the stars in the sky, and how these things affect things here on Earth, right? Uh, and I, I refer to these oftentimes as like energetic principles or concepts or things like that, rather than trying to think in the uh, physical sense that we've been taught to think of these things uh, when we're talking about these astronomical bodies in the sky, these luminaries, so to say. Well, tonight we're going to delve a little bit deeply into uh, some of the different spiritual aspects of these things and the uh, types of... Uh, energetic principles that these different uh, various things in the sky uh, project here to Earth, and uh, how those dark occultists who run this place often will try to leverage these ideas against us because we've been taught to think of these things as silly or nonsensical. Uh, and that couldn't be further from the truth because there's a real inherent natural energy involved with some of this stuff. So it's important to look at this. So tonight, we're going to look at a lecture given by Rudolf Steiner back in 1923. Uh, and it was given at Dornak. I don't know where Dornak is. <laughs> I'll be honest. D-O-R-N-A-C-H. It was given there on July 27th, 1923. And uh, this is just a, uh, a written version of uh, what he had said. It's a transcript of the lecture. So we're going to go through this, and I'm going to pause at certain points and try to uh, give a little bit more depth uh, of some of these ideas that Steiner covers here, because uh, a lot of this stuff is very important, and uh, it's often overlooked in the modern era. And that's something that's kind of a shame. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because here it is. This, this is a 99-year-old writing, almost 100 years ago. Uh, this guy was given this lecture, and... Uh, how woefully we have fallen since then, right? Uh, into some of the more uh, hyper-materialist viewpoints of things. Uh, so <clears throat> we're going to uh, get into some of these concepts here. And uh, I, I hope uh, maybe you could garner some value from the things we're going to talk about. Because I know a lot of times people shut down and they have a hard time following these type of concepts. But uh, it's important to uh, try to think outside the box and understand things from the more philosophical perspective here. Uh, because this stuff has outlived, um, you know, our modern science by a long, long time. Uh, th these methods of thinking of the, the older traditions uh, have, have outlived our modern view of things. And I think they, they bear things out a little better. Uh, they give them a more accurate description 
of how they operate, right? So uh, that, that's the viewpoint I come at this from. I, I think it's worthy of consideration. Now, uh, I, I also think that uh, many aspects of our modern scientific method, uh, you know, bear some value as well. But you got to kind of look at this from, from both vantage points. Understand that scientific method is only one methodology of analyzing information. And that's what's forgotten in the modern era. Uh, many people think of science as the be-all, end-all of everything, of observation, of recording uh, different, uh, you know, observations and things like that. And uh, the only way to solve problems or the only way to quantify or measure things. Uh, and that's the thing. There are some things that are not objectively quantifiable in that way, uh, more subjective ideas. And these are not accurately analyzed or assessed properly with scientific method. So it's important to uh, look at things with the philosophical lens at times, or maybe the more uh, religious lens at other times. And, uh, you know, the experiential lens at various times too. Uh, and the synchro mystic. Uh, let's not forget the synchro mystic. That's, that's one of my favorite topics to really look at. Uh, the synchro mystic, because that's that's the kind of category a lot of this stuff falls into, because it's not something you could outright uh, like demonstrate in a quantifiable way to people, but uh, it's it's an obvious thing that uh, can be inferred just by looking at you know how things transpire. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into it here because I, I feel like I'm going off on a side tangent and I don't want to do that without even having read any of the paper yet. So uh, let's get into it. So this is called The Spiritual Individualities of the Planets by Rudolf Steiner, a lecture given, like I said, July 27th, 1923. And reading directly from Steiner's words here. I want to add to what has previously been said some explanation of certain deeper foundations of world mysteries of which in modern civilization all knowledge has been lost. To realize the loss, we need think only of the modern conception of the planetary system, that it originated in some kind of rotating primeval nebula from which the various planetary bodies were dispersed. The speculations derived from this picture have led merely to the idea that there are no fundamental differences between these heavenly bodies, and this is the prevailing attitude towards them. And I'm going to pause there. Remember, Steiner uh, was saying this in 1923. And uh, basically what he's stating here was uh, pretty much what has evolved into the Big Bang Theory and all of the, the cosmology, uh, the cosmological model that we've been given by our modern science now. Uh, so this was in the early days of that type of thing. So uh, when, when he's talking about this, he's talking about uh, this is what science says and uh, it's missing a lot of context, essentially, is what he's saying. And so, uh, with that being said, let's continue on here. <coughs> Excuse me. If the whole planetary system is comprised in the picture of a rotating nebula, out of which the heavenly bodies gradually separated, what essential difference is there between, for example, the moon and Saturn? It is, of course, true that very important researches carried out during the 19th century into earthly substances, particularly the minerals, have been able to say a great deal about the material composition of the heavenly bodies and have worked out a certain kind of physics and chemistry for them. This has made it possible for ordinary textbooks to give specific details about Venus, Saturn, the Moon, and so on. 
But all this amounts to no more than making an image of, let us say, the physical organism of man, leaving out of account altogether the fact that he is a being of soul and spirit. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So you see the line that Steiner's drawing here, first of all, between the planets and between man, the macrocosm and the microcosm, right? And secondly, you'll notice the term he uses here. He said, this amounts to no more than the making of an image of what these planets are out there. It's an image. Remember that. This is an important idea. This is an important concept uh, that might be a little hard for people to wrap their brains around somewhat. Uh, because remember, it's all about images. And think back uh, to uh, that uh, book that I've been citing a lot lately, The Changing Images of Man. Right? Once again, the idea of the image. All right, this is a mental construct, right? It doesn't necessarily reflect the truth or the reality of the situation. It's a mental model made to uh, be a symbol in a person's mind for something else. Uh, so when we're talking about an image, well, this is a representation that your brain makes of a thing that perhaps you haven't seen before. But uh, your brain will construct this image. And, and this works, uh, like if you like to read like fictional novels or something like that, uh, sometimes the, the way that uh, various books and things will describe a character or an environment or a situation, your brain makes an image of that for you to think on. So you picture this in your head. This is an image, right? This is not the actual thing. And, you know, I, I mean, that goes without saying when we're talking about a work of fiction. But... Uh, when you're talking about something like, say, the planet Saturn. Now, I say Saturn, and automatically you're picturing this ball with giant rings around it, flying around in a, a black background with stars, right? That's what you would picture. That's an image. Does that reflect the reality? Maybe, maybe not, right? Uh, so th that's, that's what you got to keep in mind. So it's about the image. So uh, let's continue on here. Where did I leave off? Uh, and he also, um, like I said, he, he equated it there to the, the human being, too. So, uh, you know, it's important to keep that in mind, the physical organism of man, the as above, so below concept here. Uh, it's, it's always, you know, the, the microcosm reflecting the macrocosm. So it, that's an important concept here. But he was talking about... Uh, the fact that when we, we come up with this image for the planets, right, it's lacking soul or spirit, right? Uh, so it's it's just a physical outward appearance, per se. Uh, so that being the case, let's continue where we left off. So Steiner continues, and he says, With the help of initiation science, we must again learn to realize that our planetary system, too, is permeated with soul and spirit. And today, I want to speak of the individualities, and he has that in quotation marks, and the individual characters of the several planets. Uh, so I'm going to pause for a second there. So this is going to be uh, interesting, uh, because each of these planetary bodies uh, that are being described here, or these, these concepts, these images that we uh, think of when we think of these planets, they represent different characteristics, right? Uh, they have different aspects to them. Uh, and, and many of these are social energies, which actually correlate uh, directly to these different bodies and uh, where, they, where they are in the sky at a given time, 
And this affects behavior here on Earth, life on Earth. And people don't seem to want to put two and two together with that. Even though uh, any anybody who works in an emergency room will tell you on the night of a full moon, you usually have a lot more cases in the ER than you would on a normal night on another night. Uh, so this is like demonstrable, just common sense-wise around the world, that uh, the position and, uh, you know... Uh, the not just the position but also the prominence of an astrological body in the sky could have an effect on human behavior here uh, so you know it's not that far out of the realm of possibility that uh, uh, somebody in a position of power somewhere understands how some of these things work and uh, plans things accordingly to try to leverage the energetic principles involved and i i would say that's exactly what goes on in this world especially uh with uh the powers that be, right? Uh, many of them, it's been demonstrated that uh, a lot of people in uh, important political positions have always uh, inquired uh, the help of an astrologer, right? Uh, think back to the Reagans, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan. They were they were well known for this. They employed an astrologer to help them figure things out and to give them advice based upon the position of the stars. There's a reason for this. That people in a position of power like that they don't take these things lightly, right? Uh, there's there's something to it. You need to understand that. Uh, so that that's the important thing here. And whether you believe in it or not, make make no doubt about it. There's people in positions of power in this world that wholeheartedly do believe in it and will act accordingly. And the things they do to act on this information will affect all of us. So it's important that you understand where they're coming from. So regardless of what your stance is on this whole thing, whether you think there's something to it or not, I understand there's people that uh, try to utilize these concepts uh, in very many ways. So, you know, and that will affect you. But, <coughs> excuse me, let's continue on. Okay, back to what Steiner said. Steiner continues and he says, We will think, to begin with, of the planet nearest the Earth, the planet with whose history, the Earth's history, though only in a certain sense, is bound up, and which once played an entirely different part in earthly life from the part it plays today. Then he continues, and he says, You know from my book, Occult Science, an outline, uh, Rudolf Steiner Press, London, that there was once a cosmic age, relatively speaking, not in a very remote past, when the moon was still united with the earth. The moon then separated from the earth and now circles around it. So I'm going to pause there. So what Steiner's saying, and I've heard this in many other places too, uh, this goes along with Rosicrucian cosmology and, and you know, many teachings of the other secret brotherhoods, uh, that uh, the moon wasn't always in the sky, right? We didn't always have the moon. There was a period in Earth's history where there was no moon. Uh, so, and, and a lot of different... Uh, uh, Aboriginal tribes and stuff like that also have these types of legends that go back to where there was no moon in the sky. So this this is a claim that's been made uh, through various times and cultures. So that being said, uh, th this is what Steiner's saying now too. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, let's continue on. He said, the moon then separated from the earth and now circles around it. We speak of the moon as a physical body in the heavens. Its physical nature is only the external, the most external, revelation of the spiritual behind it. To those who have knowledge of both its inner and its, or sorry, its outer and its inner nature, 
The moon in our universe presents itself to begin with as a gathering of spiritual beings living in great seclusion. Outwardly, the moon acts as a mirror of the universe. The fact that it reflects the light of the sun is evident to the most superficial observation. So we can say, what comes from the moon is the light of the sun which has shone upon it and is then reflected. First and foremost, then, the moon is a mirror of the sun's light. Now, as you all know, we see what is outside or in front of a mirror, but we do not see what is behind it. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. This is an important idea to kind of grasp a hold of. Think of the moon as a mirror, right? Reflecting various lights and energies from all throughout the known universe or the known cosmology down to earth here it's a reflector it's a mirror uh, what do we know about a mirror what's steiner saying here well when you look in a mirror you see all the reflections from all the other directions but you can't see what's directly behind the mirror so he's equating the moon to the mirror right uh, so let's continue on here and see what he has to say next the moon is not the mirror of the sun's light only for it reflects everything that radiates upon it the radiations of the solar light being, of course, by far the strongest. All the heavenly bodies in the universe send their rays towards the moon, and the moon, as a mirror of the universe, then radiates them back in every direction. And I'm going to pause for a second there and think about this. So once again, he's equating it to the idea of the mirror, and he's talking about the rays, right? These energetic rays uh, being emitted by various bodies in the night sky, right? Uh, so, you know, when we think of these terms, the moon is the reflector of all of these energies back to Earth. So think about that. It's, it's a mirror. It's a reflector. And it could be used to focus energies, per se. Uh, so that, that's kind of the occult concept that's being bound up in it here. But there's something behind it, right, that we don't see. And this is what uh, Steiner's getting at. So let's continue on here. It can be said, therefore, that the universe is before us in a twofold aspect. It reveals itself in the environment of the earth and is radiated back by the moon. The sun's rays work with tremendous power in themselves and also in their reflection from the moon. But every other radiation is in cosmic space is also reflected by the moon. There is the manifested universe and there is also its reflection from the moon. And I'm going to pause for a second there. So... Think about this, okay? This is the whole Gemini idea, all right? Uh, the, the double, the, uh, the cosmic double idea, this, this double aspect of things. Uh, so there's the manifested universe, and there's also the reflection. Uh, and, and the moon encapsulates this and is the, uh, the focal point that directs it towards the Earth here, more or less, is essentially what he's saying. Now think of this, okay? I'm going to equate this back to uh, something some of us might be familiar with, all right? And uh, I hope I don't lose anybody here, but uh, think of the Fibonacci sequence, all right? And uh, the, the various numbers that, it, you know, make up or constitute the, the Fibonacci sequence. So, the first several numbers of the Fibonacci sequence are 1, 1, 2, 3, 5. So, uh, Here's a couple key concepts in that, right? You have one and one twice. This is the absolute and the attribute, 
okay? So one is the absolute, one is also the attribute, and together when they make the two, the duality, right, this reflects, listen, see, hear that word again, reflects the nature of the universe manifest on earth, manifest in form, right? So this is the, the, the soul and spirit manifest in physical form, so to say. So you have the absolute and the attribute. So uh, if you're thinking in terms of light, this would be uh, one would represent light, but the, the second one would represent illumination, which is the attribute of light. So see, light is the actual physical thing, but illumination is what we see. It's the reflection, so to say, of the light. Not necessarily the reflection, but the manifestation of it. Uh, and it's the same thing, I think, in terms of fire. And, and this is how the old philosophers thought and the alchemists thought. So one represents the fire, which would be the fervent heat. And one also represents the flame, which is the visible fire, right? Fire and the flame, light and illumination, the absolute and the attribute. And then combined together, the absolute and the attribute uh, manifest as the actual physical reflection of this said thing. Uh, so I, I, this is sometimes hard for people to, to grasp the concept here uh, because this gets deeply philosophical at points, but uh, that's absolutely what's represented by those first two numbers in the Fibonacci sequence. And it's also significant that uh, in those first couple numbers of the Fibonacci sequence, the number four is absent, and we'll get to that later uh, because there's an important concept there as well. But uh, I don't want to get too hung up on a sidetrack here, but think of what uh, Steiner's saying here. The moon is the great reflector, right, uh, that reflects all these different uh, universal energies, so to say, these energetic principles. Let's read on. Anyone capable of observing the mirror pictures thrown back by the moon in all directions would have the whole universe before him in reflection. Only that which is within the moon that and that alone remains, if I may so express it, the moon's secret. It remains hidden, just as what is behind a mirror remains hidden. What is behind the outer surface of the moon, in the innermost sphere of the moon, is significant above all in its spiritual aspect. So I'm going to pause for a second. What's Steiner talking about here? What's behind the moon, right? What is this that's behind the mirror, so to say? And this, this is where it gets uh, interesting. It, he's talking about what we would call the dark side of the moon. Why is the idea of the dark side of the moon so important um, through these different social engineering tropes? Well, this is exactly what Steiner's talking about. This is the, the not visible side of the moon. It's the back of the mirror, so to say. What's behind the mirror, right? Uh, so this is a concept that's kind of archetypal in its usage by uh, the social engineers and the, these people calling the shots here. Um, it, it's an important concept to think on. So let's see what Steiner has to say about that. But he says it's significant above all because it's 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 spiritual aspect. So let's read on here. The spiritual beings peopling the innermost sphere of the moon are beings who shut themselves off in strict seclusion from the rest of the universe. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. When he's saying beings, um, 
you know, I think he's inferring to, uh, referring to intelligences, so to say, intelligently guided energetic principles. I think that's the best way to think about this, uh, something a little more elemental per se than like actual, what we would fig, you know, figure as being like human beings or alien beings or something like that. See, this is the way we've been taught to think about this stuff. There's aliens on the moon and even, uh, like, like, think about this. Think about, uh, what, uh, uh, John Lear used to say. Do you remember ever listening to John Lear on the old Coast to Coast shows and stuff like that? If you haven't, I mean, go find some of his old interviews. He talks about how gray aliens have a giant antenna on the backside of the moon and they collect souls from the earth. That's what their job is. It's a recycling center, right? These kind of ideas are a perversion of what's meant here, all right? Uh, so, so that's the thing. We've been taught and trained to think in these ways of like the strictly physical, the material world, in the hyper-materialist viewpoint. Now, there's an underlying uh, spiritual truth there, I think, that's being hinted at. But he's ta he talks about it in this purely physical way, right? Uh, so, like, there, there's a lot of these people that have come out through the years uh, that really kind of... Uh, how should we say, mimic or mirror uh, these different teachings from the, these old secret society groups, but they twist them and uh, turn them into a physical, fictitious type representation in much the same way. Uh, so they take this spiritual thing and they try to turn it into a materialist kind of viewpoint, and they, they give that to people. And in so doing, they're they're putting the truth out there, but they're they're hiding it in nonsense right improvable nonsense uh so that that's how a lot of this stuff gets uh, presented to the public you you look at it and you think it's fiction it's it's nonsense um and and that's why things like astrology have gotten a bad name we've been taught to think of these things in these types of terms right and that's not necessarily the case this is a whole different level philosophically it's uh t talking about something spiritual rather than something physical here but uh, so that's that's what Steiner's saying here. I'll begin reading that again, not to get hung up on that point, but I, I just want to try and get people's frame of reference correct here. So instead of thinking there's aliens on the backside of the moon collecting souls, <laughs> like John Lear would suggest, uh, think a little bit differently. These would be uh, like intelligent, energetic principles uh, that uh, ma manage to manifest different uh, energies here on Earth. Uh, that are present uh, in the cosmos as well, as above, so below, right? So let's read on. The spiritual beings peopling the, this innermost sphere of the moon are beings who shut themselves off in strict seclusion from the rest of the universe. They live in their moon fortress, and he has fortress in quotation marks, and only someone who, by developing certain qualities connected with the human heart, succeeds in relating himself to the sun's light in such a way that he does not see the reflection from the moon. Only for such a man does the moon become, as it were, inwardly transparent, and he could penetrate into this moon fortress of the universe. He then makes the significant discovery that through the utterances, through the teachings of these beings who have withdrawn into seclusion in this moon fortress, certain secrets can be revealed that were once in the possession of the most advanced spirits on the earth, but have long since been lost. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So what is Steiner saying here? 
Well, he's claiming that uh, only somebody who has a pure heart and is advanced enough in uh, the these studies can possibly maybe get to a place where he could see and understand uh, what these these beings or these energies of the moon are. He could see through the mirror to the backside of the mirror and see what's there instead of the mirror itself, right? And what's back there is actually secret teachings uh, that have been lost to the earth that we once had. Uh, so <laughs> is there something to this or not, right? Once again, it leaves you grasping at more questions here. Because invariably, when you come across this stuff, this is always what happens. They always lure you further down the road by dangling a carrot of secret information in front of you that may or may not even exist and will keep you spinning your wheels, moving forward towards that goal of learning this great secret. But you could only achieve or acquire this great secret if you're worthy enough, right? And of course, nobody's ever worthy enough, right? <laughs> That's the whole secret behind it. It's about controlling people. Uh, and I think Steiner's one of the better ones out there as far as uh, people giving like actual good information of this esoteric information. Uh, but even I think he even was not unaffected by this mentality, right? This this initiation uh, type of mentality that these these many uh, secret society groups and stuff have. I think he was even swayed by that uh, to a certain degree here. And once again, this is the same type of thing where only if you're you know an advanced initiate can you understand this stuff. And you know if you don't get it, well then you know you just weren't worthy enough. Right, And this is the thing you encounter through the entire different system here of all these secret society groups. They all work and function in the same ways. Uh, you can't possibly know that because, well, you're just not worthy enough. Uh, you haven't been true enough to the teachings or listening to the master and this and that. Uh, so it's the same kind of thing. I don't think Steiner was uh, necessarily immune to that same type of thinking to a certain degree. But uh, as far as you know, people who teach a lot of this stuff or put a lot of this information to writing, I think he was one of the best as far as actually conveying the actual uh, ideas themselves in a more or less unbiased fashion, even though he does obviously uh, display this type of bias. Uh, because it's about initiation, right? Initiation rights and stuff with a lot of these people. Uh, you're only worthy if you go through the initiation process. Uh, so... That's, that's the kind of thinking that uh, has permeated many of these groups. And, uh, you know, I think it's a little off base, so to say. But, uh, you know, as far as Steiner's writing goes, he's, he's pretty, pretty clear in his description of things for the most part. So uh, let's take the value that's there and uh, try to disregard the stuff that we may find to be, well, I don't know if I'd say disingenuous, but uh, the stuff we would say that... Uh, you know, the, the secret societies where they they have, you know, compounded or, or conflated some of the information, so to say, so that it's only the worthy few can see it, right? I find absolutely no value in secrecy of this sort. Uh, so, and, you know, you could use the argument, don't cast your pearls before swine. That's the popular one among them, but, you know... It doesn't stand to reason. If this is actual information that could help a human being, why do you have to keep it secret, right? Nothing good comes from secrecy. Even Jesus said, in secret have I taught you nothing, right? 
So why the secrecy? And, you know, if, if you don't get it, if it's esoteric or something, right, and you don't get it, well, that's different if it's being put out there, but you just don't get it because you're not that far along the path or whatever. I understand, you know, to a certain degree that stuff, but there's no reason to be just, you know, blatantly misleading people as happens so often with this type of information. But uh, like I said, let's, let's get back to the reading here because Steiner was one of the, the few, I think, that didn't have much of that uh, misleading people kind of mentality here. The farther we go back in the evolution of the earth, the less do we find the abstract truths that are the pride of present-day humanity. More and more we find pictures, truths expressed in pictures. We wrestle our way through the deeply significant truths, still preserved, as a last echo of oriental wisdom in the Vedas and the Vedanta philosophy. We press on to the primal revelations hidden behind the myths and sagas, and we realize with wonder and awe that a glorious wisdom was once possessed by men who received it without intellectual effort as grace from the spiritual worlds. And finally, we come to all that was once taught to primeval humanity on earth by the beings who have now withdrawn into the moon fortress in this universe. Hold on one second. Here we go. <clears throat> After leaving the earth together with the moon. A certain memory was preserved of what these beings had once revealed to the peoples of a remote past, to men whose nature was quite different from human nature as it is today. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. So this uh, this relates back to some of the teachings of the secret groups here, the secret society groups, uh, you know, places like the Rosicrucians, uh, about these root races, okay, about the idea of root races and stuff like this. And this goes back to uh, a period before our modern era where human beings were different, right? Uh, it speaks about uh, where human beings were more uh, in the spiritual and, you know, and the physical, where they had one foot in both worlds, so to say, and were able to see in the spiritual worlds. And they, they stepped away from that and fell into gross materiality here in many ways. So that's what this speak is speaking of. This age passed when the moon broke away and man stepped strictly into material here and lost his sight into spiritual realms. That's when the moon went into place, right? And these certain beings who were, I guess, uh, advanced enough in their evolutionary process, as the way they explain it in uh, many of the Rosicrucian mysteries and stuff like that, they went with that. So they, they exist at behind the mirror of the moon, so to say, in the its innermost part, and uh, they they have many of these old secrets that they taught ancient humanity back then, right? Uh, so th this is all about uh, the succession of evolutionary cycles and things like that. Uh, when you look back through these secret teachings, and it gets a bit convoluted and messy, and you know that's a show for another day, but. Uh, Right now, just to keep in mind, so that's what they're saying. There was a period uh, that the Earth had long ago before the moon was in the sky where we had some of these advanced beings here helping us, and man had his, his one foot in the spiritual realm and one foot in the material realm, and he fell victim to actually liking um, being in this material form, right? Uh, experiencing the physical reality like this. 
and it became sort of an addiction for him. And this is what they say happened uh, in the uh, time of Atlantis, uh, between Lemuria and Atlantis, when you go back and you look at some of these old teachings of uh, many of these secret society groups. So uh, man in the mid-Atlantean period lost his spiritual sight altogether and became addicted, so to say, uh, in physical form, in physicality. Uh, he liked it. He liked being in physical form. Uh, so he lost much of his spiritual sight. Uh, and that being the case, this is when the, the moon period, uh, or when the moon broke away from the earth, so to say, and those advanced evolutionary beings, so to say, went with it. This is what they teach, folks. And whether you believe it or not, um, is immaterial because there's people in positions of power in this world that do. And these are the things they act on. And the things they do to act on this stuff will affect us, right? So even if you think it sounds like nonsense, understand there's people, especially ones that have been through all these different initiatory rites through the secret society groups uh, and have gone up, uh, you know, into the higher echelons of uh, these different groups and to the inner circles thereof, which we would call or refer to as the Illuminati, um, the people that have gone on to this, this, you know, these types of teachings, they believe in this stuff very much so and act on it. So, happy in the case, if it sounds convoluted and nonsensical, um, keep in mind there's people that act on these principles. So I'm just trying to convey what it is that they teach here. I don't necessarily uh, believe a lot of this stuff or uh, buy into a lot of it, but I do think there are some core truths underlying some of these teachings, right? And just like everything else, they've gotten perverted and messed up through the years and through the, the decades and the centuries and the millennia. And the secret society groups that control this information now have twisted it so far out of line with what it originally was intended to be that now it's perverse beyond perverse. And it's all about artificial, artificial things, uh, setting up an artificial system, so to say, and thinking in the gross material form of things. So... With that being the case, let's continue reading on. I don't want to get too hung up on side notes here with like that. But uh, let's see. He finishes up right there. He says, A certain memory was preserved of what these beings had once revealed to the peoples of a remote past, to men whose nature was quite different from human nature as it is today. And I just explained what it is they believe, how it was different. If we succeed in fathoming this mystery, I will call it the moon mystery of the universe, we realize that these beings who have now entrenched themselves in the moon fortress were once the great teachers of earthly humanity, but all consciousness of the realities of spirit and soul hidden in this fortress has been lost. What is still transmitted to the earth from the heavens re represents only what the outer surface, the walls, as it were, of the moon fortress radiate back from the rest of the universe. This moon mystery was one of the deepest secrets in the ancient mysteries, for it is the primal wisdom that the moon enshrines within itself. What the moon is able to reflect from the whole universe forms the sum total of the forces which sustain the animal world of the earth, especially the forces that are connected with the sexual nature of animals. These forces also sustain the animal element in man and are connected with his sexual nature in its physical aspect. So the lower nature of man is a product of what radiates from the moon, while the highest wisdom once possessed by the earth lies concealed within the moon moon fortress and i'm going to pause there folks so uh we do see there 
there's some essential truths here. Uh, our reproductive cycles are tied to the timing of the moon, right? The menstrual cycle is tied to the timing of the moon and the moon phase. Um, the digits on our hands, our fingers, uh, reflect the, the, the cycle of the moon. There's 28 phalanges in the hands, 14 on each hand, uh, 28 days in the lunar cycle. Uh, all these correspondences, they, they have various meanings, and it is the as above, so below reflection here, once again. Uh, so we see what he's saying here is the moon equates to the physical animal nature of man, right? So this would be the, the gross materiality part of it. Uh, that's, that's what has happened here. But there's another mystery that lies deep within the, the confines of the moon, so to say, which would reflect back to... Uh, these ascended masters, so to say, as he calls them, right? Uh, how these were the, how did he, he claim it? They were the great teachers of earthly humanity at one point. Uh, so they're saying that uh, it's it, there's an ascension to be had by understanding the mystery of the moon. But uh, the moon has us tied in the physical, right? That's essentially what he's saying here. So it represents um, these different energetic uh, reflections from the universe at large uh, manifest here in the physical as a result of the moon being there. So that's essentially one of the things he's saying. And this is just the outer secret of it. And this is what he calls the, the mystery of the moon, right? But let's continue on, and then we'll get to the next thing here. Because, uh, you know, we're already like 45 minutes in, and we haven't even gotten through the moon. <laughs> so there's a lot to cover here. All right. In this way, one comes gradually to a knowledge of the individuality of the moon, to knowledge of what the moon is in reality, whereas all other knowledge is only like information we could glean about a human being from a pasteboard image of him displayed in some exhibition. Such an image would tell us nothing whatever about the man's individuality. Equally, it is not possible for a science that refuses any approach towards initiation to know anything about the individuality of the moon. And that's the end of the passage here about the moon. Uh, so essentially what he's saying is, all right, we have this image. Remember, he, he referred to it as an image. We have this image of the moon, and we see this physical representation of the moon in the sky. But what we're seeing is just a mirror right? It's reflecting the, the different energetic rays and principles from all around the entire known universe down to earth here. And they would uh, cause manifestation just in the strict physical sense. And that's all that we see uh, from this. Uh, so uh, there's, there's another mystery behind the moon, so he says here. And once we are able to actually look beyond the scope of our modern science... And look at these things from the initiatic principle. So he says, I would say more the philosophical principle than initiatic or initiation. They like to, to use this initiation kind of ideology for everything. Uh, and I think that's, that's part and parcel of um, one of the perversions that has gone on with some of these teachings, right? 
the, the whole thing about initiation being so important. I think it's a matter of if, if the person's ready or understands the information and can digest it, then yes, that's fine. I don't think, uh, you know, it's necessarily you have to go through the initiatic rite because it's all about these different rites and uh, these different uh, uh, traditions and rituals to these, these different groups. Uh, so that's the thing here. But So what he's referring to as initiation, just replace with the word philosophy. And I think we have a better view of things. So it's all about breaking down uh, the science and the philosophy. Um, so philosophy would be, you know, uh, um, the polar opposite, so to say, of science. And somewhere in the middle would lie what we call metaphysics, right? So in order to have a better metaphysical view of things, we have to look at it from the scientific approach and the philosophical approach together, combined to get to a metaphysical approach. But... Once again, another side detail, a sidetrack I got rambling on. Let's continue on here, because next is Saturn. We turn now... Hold on, lost my place. Okay. We turn now to Saturn. In earlier times, Saturn was regarded as the outermost planet of our system, Uranus and Neptune having been added much later. We will leave them out of consideration now and think of Saturn as a kind of antithesis to the moon. The nature of Saturn is such that he receives many diverse impulses from the universe but allows none of them to stream back at all events not to the earth. Saturn, too, of course, is irradiated by the sun, but what he reflects of the solar rays has no significance for earthly life. And I'm going to pause for a second there. Notice he's... Uh, attributing a gender to these planetary bodies, right? So he's referring to Saturn as a he, right? Uh, the moon, I, I don't think he did such a thing. He didn't acquire an attribution of gender to it, did he? Uh, but notice now, when we get to the other planets, he does. And this is important for a lot of reasons, and a lot of reasons that have been lost uh, with the advent of the English language here, so to say. So, uh, Let's read on, though, and see what he says here. Uh, where did I leave off? Okay. Saturn is an entirely self-engrossed heavenly body in our planetary system, raying his own being into the universe. When we contemplate Saturn, he tells us always what he is, whereas the moon, contemplated in its external aspect, tells us about everything else in the universe. Saturn tells us nothing at all about the impulses he receives from the universe. He speaks only of himself, tells us only what he himself is, and what he is reveals itself gradually as a kind of memory of the planetary system. Saturn presents himself to us as the heavenly individuality who has steadfastly participated in whatever has come to pass in our planetary system and has faithfully preserved it in his cosmic memory. He is silent about the cosmic present. He receives the things of the cosmic present into himself and works upon them in his life of spirit and soul. True, the hosts of beings indwelling Saturn lend their attention to the outer universe, but mutely and silently they receive the happenings in the universe into the realm of soul, and they speak only of past cosmic events. That is why Saturn is like a kaleidoscopic memory of our planetary system. As a faithful informant concerning what has come to pass in the planetary system, he holds its secrets of this kind within himself. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. 
there, folks. So Saturn is all about the past, right? Saturn, uh, the, this energetic principle is about nostalgia, among other things, right? So th this is what uh, could be invoked by invoking the idea of Saturn. It's about the past. It's about time, right? And uh, remember, we were talking before, just as a side note here, about the Fibonacci sequence and how the number four was missing. Well, four, this is the, the uh, number that's associated with time. Time. Uh, and this, this ties back to the Saturn idea once again. And time is a man-made conception, right? Now, everything uh, runs in a cyclical way, but time, uh, as we measure it and as we count it and as we identify it, this is a man-made concept. And all it is, it's, it's a measure of motion uh, over a, a certain period, uh, so to say. It's, it's a way of measuring or identifying change in position, right? So with no motion, there's no time. Keep that in mind. If there's no motion, there's no time. And, and sometimes this is hard uh, to uh, describe and comprehend, but it's not something that happens in the natural order. Uh, so when we look back at this Fibonacci sequence, that's why the number four is absent from that. It's one, one, two, three, five. And four is skipped over because this is a man-made conception. This is our science. This is the artificiality introduced uh, to uh, equate things in a, a way or at a scale that uh, is, doesn't happen in the natural order of things. Uh, so, you know, like when we say everything has... Uh, it's, it's principles of, of cycles. Everything's rhythmic. Uh, this, this, you know, hermetic philosophy of rhythm, uh, the, the pattern, the cyclical nature of things. Yes, that's true. But time in and of itself is not a concept that happens uh, with natural manifestation, so to say. Uh, it's a man-made measure, right? So that's the important thing to keep in mind. And this is one of the first steps towards this scientific approach and this artificial response to the natural way of things uh, but let's not get hung up on that side note here because i probably lost some people <laughs> okay let's read on so it says here uh, where'd we leave off here okay steiner once again continues here he says whereas in endeavoring to fathom the mysteries of the universe we should turn to the moon in vain whereas we must win the confidence of the moon beings if we are to learn anything from them about cosmic mysteries this is not necessary with saturn with saturn all that is necessary is to be open to receive the spiritual and then to the eyes of spirit and soul saturn becomes a living historian of the planetary system nor does he withhold the stories he can tell of what has come to pass in the planetary system. In this respect, Saturn is the exact opposite of the moon. Saturn speaks unceasingly of the past of the planetary system with such inner warmth and zest that intimate acquaintance with what he says can be dangerous. For the devotion with which he tells of past happenings in the universe arouses in us an overwhelming love for the cosmic past. Saturn is the constant tempter of those who listen to his secrets. He tempts them to give little heed to earthly affairs of today and to immerse themselves in what the earth once was. Above all, Saturn speaks graphically about what the earth was before it became earth, and for this reason he is the planet who makes the past unendingly 
personally dear to us. Those who have a particular inclination towards Saturn in earthly existence are people who like to be gazing always into the past, who are opposed to progress, who ever and again want to bring back the past. These indications give some idea of the individuality, the individual character of Saturn. So let's pause right there. So like I said, this is the, uh, the concept of nostalgia programming, right? Uh, this is um, the idea of uh, what these secret society groups have done, right? Because they're trying to uh, reestablish this old golden age, right? This, this time uh, of paradise, the Garden of Eden. Rather than moving forward, they want to get back to that golden age. Uh, that's what much of their stated goal has been. Uh, many of these secret society groups that follow these Saturnian principles. And we, we always see, uh, you know, it goes back to different cults of Saturn and stuff like that in ancient history. And, and this is why. It's that nostalgia programming. They're, they're looking to gain back uh, an earlier age, a golden age, where it was paradise, where uh, there wasn't original sin or anything like that that entered into this place, where it was a... A utopia, so to say. And that's why they, they seek out to try to reset this whole thing to that utopia. That's why it's called the Great Reset, folks. It's, it's about moving backwards. That's why they want to move backwards instead of forwards. It's not the Great Awakening or moving forward that they want. It's the Great Reset. Going back. Back to the time of this golden age. It's the nostalgia programming. It's the Saturn principle at play. Let's continue on, though, because we have more to cover and, you know, only about another half an hour to go. Jupiter is a planet with a different character. Jupiter is the thinker in our planetary system, and thinking is the activity cultivated by all the beings in his cosmic domain. Creative thoughts received from the universe radiate to us from Jupiter. Jupiter contains, in the form of thoughts, all the formative forces for different orders of cosmic beings. Whereas Saturn tells of the past, Jupiter gives a living portrayal of what is connected with him in the cosmic present. But what Jupiter reveals to the eye of spirit must be grasped with thoughtful intelligence. If a man does not himself make efforts to develop his capacities of thinking, he cannot, even if he is clairvoyant, approach the mysteries of Jupiter, for they are revealed in the form of thoughts and can be approached only through a genuine activity of thinking. Jupiter is the thinker in our universe. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. Yeah, I know this sounds like a mouthful, right? sounds like a lot of gobbledygook but uh here's the thing i mean when we're talking about the the jupiter principle now this is uh where uh steiner here is claiming that uh we get our creative unction from so to say uh that this is the 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 home of the muse in in so much terminology here right uh so this is the thing that in yeah uh, you know in how should we say uh, gives us inspiration, right? This is the, the inspiration of thought, this, this energetic principle associated with Jupiter. So let's read on. When efforts to bring clarity of thought to bear upon some weighty problem of existence are unsuccessful because of physical, etheric, and especially astral hindrances, the Jupiter beings come to the help of mankind. 
A man who has tried hard to apply clear thinking to some problem but cannot get to the root of it will find, if he is patient and works inwardly at it, that the Jupiter powers will actually help him during the night. And many a one has, who has found a better solution for some problem during the night, as though out of a dream, than during the previous day, would have to admit, if he knew the truth, that it is the Jupiter powers who imbue human thinking with mobility and vigor. Saturn, then is the preserver of the memory of our universe. Jupiter is the thinker in our universe. To Jupiter, man owes all the impulses he is able to receive from the spiritual present in the universe. To Saturn, he owes all the impulses, all the impulses of soul and spirit he can receive from the cosmic past. Uh, so I'm going to pause for a second there. So you see the dichotomy here. Jupiter represents the present, the here and now, and Saturn represents the past, right? And we could learn from our past, but we could also exist and think in terms of the present, because all we truly have is the present. Uh, because like I said, time is this unnatural man-made concept, so to say. All we have is right now, and it's fleeting, isn't it? Uh, even the, the words I just said like three seconds ago, they're gone forever. Um, and even though they may be recorded or, you know, that kind of thing, that moment is past and we're in the now and the now is all that matters. And this is one of the, the main, uh, types of concepts here that many of these social programmers and social engineers have captured upon. See, they use this Saturnian principle, the past, right? The past, the idea of the memories, preserving of memories, the Saturn idea is the preserver of the memory of past events and past things. Uh, so, and here's here's a little food for thought for you. All right. So this Saturnian principle, this idea of the memory being the memory bank of all all of the past, and uh, our ability to access that, so to say, uh, because Saturn is the preserver of our memory. Uh, if something were to happen to that memory uh, on a cosmic level or on a, a, a microscopic level here, the as above, so below. Uh, well, this, this might be something you could equate to a little something called the Mandela effect, right? When you think about it in those terms. So people's memories have changed and, you know, of the way that they remember past events and it's, it's more than one person. Well, this, this would represent the, the macrocosm. This is a Saturnian principle. This is a Saturnian energy being invoked in this way or, or being uh, manipulated in this way where it alters people's past memories. See, it's the storage bank, so to say, of the cosmic memory. And uh, if something were to change in the past memory some way, somehow, then it would change in people's memories, uh, wouldn't it? Uh, so you, you could see the whole invocation here of the as above, so below idea inherent in that. And that's just food for thought. I mean, that's total speculation on my part. But it makes sense to a certain degree when we're talking about something like that because it affects the memory. And according to Steiner here and, and some of the other uh, esotericists, uh, Saturn is the preserver of memory, right? Jupiter is the thinker. And uh, it's the consubstantiation of the two of them which allow us to have a basic understanding of our world. 
Uh, so it's these energetic principles being manipulated in many ways that could have an effect upon our thinking and our memories, right? Uh, so, and I know this is, this is, you know, this sounds nonsensical to some people, and it's, it's a bridge too far for some, but just consider, uh, consider it. And, and I know it's, it's a lot of thinking outside the box with this, and it's a different way of thinking than what we're taught. Uh, so that being the case, we can understand that uh, maybe if there are those people in position of power, these dark occultists that run things, if they've figured out ways to manipulate these energetic principles and uh, time things according to the sky clock and where these positions of these planetary energies and stuff are, maybe they're able to manipulate things in that way. Hmm? Perhaps. Uh, it's, it's worth consideration. But uh, let's continue on. And uh, we'll finish up here in a little bit. Uh, we still have a couple more to go. But let's read on. It was out of a certain intuition that great ven veneration was paid to Jupiter in the days of ancient Greece. Hold on here. Yeah, okay. Uh, when the human spirit lived so intensely in the present. A stimulus to the whole development of the human being is given also through the part played by Jupiter in the cycle of the year. You all know that as far as his apparent movement is concerned, Saturn moves slowly, very slowly round his orbit, taking some 30 years. Jupiter moves faster, taking about 12 years. Because of this quicker movement, Jupiter is able to bring satisfaction to man's need for wisdom. And when, at the cosmic hour of destiny in the life of a human being, a certain relationship is established between Jupiter and Saturn, there flash into human destiny those wonderful moments of illumination when many things concerning the past are revealed through thinking. And I'm going to pause there, and that kind of uh, backs up the idea of what I was saying uh, a little earlier, right? But let's read on. <coughs> If we look in history for occasions in the time of the Renaissance, particularly during its last period when there was a great renewal of ancient impulses, we shall find that this was directly connected with a certain relationship between Jupiter and Saturn. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So it's not just about these individual energetic principles associated with these planetary bodies, so to say. It's the interaction between them, right? And this is where many astrologers come along and are able to make certain predictions, and sometimes they could be accurate about it if they know what they're talking about. Uh, and But we've, like I said, our, our culture, Western culture especially, has been conditioned to not accept this as having any merit or value to it. Uh, so in that case, we're kind of missing the point here. Uh, it's, it's a different way of thinking, as I've said. But let's read on, because I want to try and squeeze this all in. But as already said, Jupiter is in a certain respect impenetrable, and his revelations remain in the unconscious if a man does not bring them clear and active light-filled thoughts of his own. And that is why in ancient times, when active thinking was still at a very early state of development, the progress of humanity was in truth always dependent upon the relation between Jupiter and Saturn. When Jupiter and Saturn together formed a certain constellation, many things were revealed to our ancestors in those days. Modern man has to depend more upon receiving the memory of Saturn and the wisdom of Jupiter separately in the course of his spiritual development. And that's the end of this section talking about Jupiter. A um, <clears throat> couple important ideas here. So it's the interaction between the Saturnian and the Jupiter 
energies. That's the important part of human thinking here and human memory, right? So when you have something like that at play, could this be an apt description of uh, ways in which our, our memories are jacked up and, you know, how we're uh, given this nostalgia programming, how, uh, you know, we're, we're affected by things like the Mandela effect? Uh, could this be, could there be something to that? Well, let's read on here and see what else Steiner has to say. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. Next up, I think it goes to Mars next. Yes. Aha. We now come to Mars. It is difficult to find appropriate expressions for these things, but Mars may be called the great talker in the planetary system, unlike Jupiter, who withholds his wisdom in the form of thoughts. Mars is constantly blurting out to the souls in his sphere whatever in the cosmos is accessible to him, which is not everything. Mars is the most talkative planet in our system, and he is particularly active when human beings talk in sleep or in dream. Mars has a great longing to be always talking, and whenever some quality in human nature enables him to make a man loquacious, he stimulates this tendency. Mars does little thinking. He has few thinkers, but many talkers in his sphere. The Mars spirits are always on the watch for what arises here or there in the universe, and then they talk about it with great zest and fervor. Mars is the planetary individuality who, in the course of the evolution of humanity, instigates human beings in manifold ways to make statements about the mysteries of the cosmos. Mars has his good and his less good sides. He has his genius and his demon, and those are both capitalized, folks. His genius works in such a way that men receive from the universe the impulses for speech. The influence of his demon results in speech being misused in many and various ways. In a certain sense, Mars may be called the agitator in our universe. He is always out to persuade, whereas Jupiter wants only to convince. Uh, so I'm going to pause there. So Mars would be... Uh, you know, associated with warlike tendencies, the agitator, right? So that, that's what this is saying, the agitator, the talker, uh, smack talk, right? <laughs> the one who talks smack. Uh, so this kind of thing, the agitator and uh, misusing information. And you'll notice here, uh, Steiner makes an allusion here to uh, what he calls genius and demon Okay, and in some of his other works, he goes on in great detail about this concept, how each of these planetary spheres, so to say, has both genius and demon, the good aspects and the bad aspects, and even mankind has this, right? Uh, as above, so below. Uh, so this is, you know, the, the microcosm to the macrocosm, so to say. Uh, but so th that's an idea for another time, but you'll notice. Uh, all of these planetary energetic principles, so to say, they have good aspects and bad aspects. And it's just a matter of how how do you manipulate those, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, now we've gotten past Mars. Uh, the next one is Venus, right? And some of these, these ones are shorter now. Uh, the, the ones about Saturn and Jupiter and the moon, those were kind of the, the most important ones, so to say. Uh, I shouldn't say most important, but probably the ones that get the most attention uh, because of the, the concepts that they invoke. Uh, but let's read on here. So, the planet Venus is again different. In a certain way, how shall I put it? 
Venus wards off the universe. She is difficult to approach. Going to pause there for a minute. So Venus has a female attribution to it, right? A feminine attribution. Notice that, that he engenders these different planetary features. So she is different to approach, or she is difficult to approach. She does not want to know anything about the universe. Her attitude is that if she were to expose herself to the external universe, she would lose her virginal nature. She is deeply shocked when any impression from the external universe attempts to approach her. She has no desire for the universe and rejects every would-be partner. It is very difficult to express these things because the circumstances and conditions have to be described in terms of earthly language. On the other hand, Venus is highly responsive to everything that comes from the earth. The earth is, so to speak, her lover. Whereas the moon reflects the whole surrounding universe, Venus reflects nothing at all of the universe, wants to know nothing of it. But she lovingly reflects whatever comes from the earth. If with the eyes of soul we are able to glimpse the mysteries of Venus, the whole earth with its secrets of life of soul is there before us once again. The truth is that human beings on earth can do nothing in the secrecy of their souls without it being reflected back again by Venus. Venus gazes deeply into the hearts of human beings, for that is what interests her, that is what she will allow to approach her. Thus, the most intimate experiences of earthly life are reflected again from Venus in a mysterious and wonderful way. In the reflection, she transforms everything just as a dream transforms the happenings of physical existence. Venus transforms the occurrences of earthly life into dream pictures. In reality, therefore, the whole sphere of Venus is a world of dream. The secrets of men in their earthly existence are transformed by Venus into dream pictures of infinite diversity. She has a very great deal to do with poets, although they are not aware of it. And I'm going to pause there for a moment, folks. So essentially, Venus is the dream world, so to say. It's a reflection of the human consciousness, the human psyche. Uh, that's that's what's, uh, you know... Um, encapsulated in this venus idea right it's it's the reflection of earthly things of the the earthly soul the souls of men so to say the innermost being right that's what this represents but let's read on i said before that venus wards off the rest of the universe she does not however repel everything in the same way in her heart Venus repels what approaches her from the universe, but not what comes from the earth. As I said before, she declines every would-be suitor, but for all that she listens attentively to the utterances of Mars. She transforms and illumines her dreamlike experiences of earthly things with what is communicated to her from the universe through Mars. All these things have their physical side as well. Impulses go out from these sources into what is done and what comes into existence in the world. Venus receives into herself everything that comes from the earth, and she listens always to Mars, but without any desire that he shall be aware of having her attention. And from this process, only of course the sun is there to regulate it, spring the forces which underlie the organs connected with the formation of of human speech. If we want to understand the impulses in the universe, sorry, lost my place here. 
these digital readers are not what they're cracked up to be. If we want to understand the impulses in the universe connected with the formation of human speech, we must turn our gaze to this strange life that weaves between Venus and Mars. When destiny wills it, the relationship of Venus to Mars is therefore a factor of great significance in the development of the speech or language of a people. A language is deepened, imbued with the quality of soul, when, for example, Venus is square to Mars. On the other hand, a language tends to become superficial, poor in qualities of soul, when Venus and Mars are in conjunction, and this in turn has an influence upon the people or nation concerned. Such are the impulses which originate in the universe and then work into the earthly world. And I'm going to pause for a minute there. That's the end of the section on Venus, right? Uh, so what this is saying is uh, this interaction between the Venus and Mars principles, this affects human language, the nuance of language. So what's happened here with the advent of the English language? We've lost a ton of nuance in our language. We've lost things like... Uh, identifying objects by a gender designation like much like the the romance languages french spanish they have an attribution to them whereas each each object named has an has a gender assigned to it or a gender principle and, and this is just a, a very basic thing uh, many of the more ancient languages had a lot more nuance to them. They had multiple words for the same thing, like a perfect example would be, uh, if you go back through old biblical translations, the word love has many different terms for it. There's agape love and, and various, I think there's four different words or terms that they used in that language to describe love, and it's, there's different nuances in what type of love it was referring to. Uh, so, that being the case, we've lost a lot of that in our modern day with our modern languages. There's so much nuance that uh, is was inferred uh, with in some of these older languages that is not so with English. We've lost so much nuance and meaning behind that. And that has to do with this interaction between these two energetic principles of Venus and Mars. So it's important to keep these things in mind. So there, there's something to this for sure, but uh, it's kind of difficult to describe right because it's it's something that uh, our modern mind has not been trained to really accept or to understand because we're taught to think in you know strictly objective scientific ways it's all about scientific observation and nothing else if you can't quantify or measure something it doesn't exist right uh, that's that's how we're taught to think so you know uh, that's not the case i mean these are more subjective type ideals uh, but I think they're still applicable, aren't they? Uh, we could see, you know, there's definitely something to them on a common sense level here. Uh, so, you know, let, let's read on, though. We're almost finished. We come next to Mercury. In contrast to the other planets, Mercury is not interested in things of a physical, material nature as such, but in whatever is capable of coordination. Mercury is the domain of the masters of coordinative thinking, Jupiter the habitation of the masters of wisdom-filled thinking. When a human being comes down from pre-earthly life into... Oh, lost my place again. Stupid digital reader. <laughs> Bear with me. When a human being comes down from pre-earthly life into earthly existence... It is the moon impulse that provides the forces for his physical existence. 
Venus provides the forces for the basic qualities of heart and temperament, but Mercury provides the forces for capacities of intellect and reason, especially of intellect. The masters of the forces of coordinative knowledge and mental activity have their habitation in Mercury. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So he says here the moon provides the impulse for the physical characteristics, physical existence. Venus provides the forces for the basic qualities of heart and temperament. Mercury uh, provides for intellect and reason, right? Uh, so we could correspond some of these things together and see this would be the inner portion of the solar system, right? Whereas uh, like Jupiter, Mars, Saturn would be the outer part of the universe in this cosmological scheme here. Uh, or the, the, the outer part of the solar system. They have orbits further out from Earth, so to say, right? They're further away. Uh, so these inner planets, so to say, or, uh, you know, uh, the, these ones closer here um, are the things that shape our manifestation here. Uh, but let's, let's read on. There is a remarkable connection between these planets and the life and being of man. The moon, which enshrines the beings living in strict seclusion and reflects only what is first radiated to it from the universe, builds and fashions the outer form, the body of man. It is therefore by the moon that the forces of heredity are incorporated in his bodily constitution. The moon is the cosmic citadel of those spiritual beings who, in complete seclusion, muse upon what is transmitted in the stream of heredity flowing from generation to generation by way of the physical. It is because the moon beings remain so firmly entrenched in their fortress that modern scientists know nothing essential about heredity. From a deeper insight, and in terms of cosmic language, it could be said that when, at the present time, heredity is discussed in one or another domain of science, the latter is moon-forsaken and Mars-bewitched. For science speaks under the influence of the demonic Mars forces and has not even begun to approach the real mysteries of heredity. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. So what does he mean here? Well, he's saying that it's moon-forsaken and Mars-bewitched, right? Our modern science in speaking about heredity. Um, and this would be, you know, in uh, conjunction to genetics or, you know, how the basic structure of uh, human DNA and stuff like that works. Uh, that, that's kind of the inference here. Now, this was 1923 when he was talking about this. So uh, I, I suspect DNA was not... Uh, you know, a, a commodity discussed at that time, but certainly heredity and genetics were, right? Uh, and our science doesn't understand these things. Uh, even our modern science, we, we still struggle with some of the ideas. And although they think they have it broken down in many ways, um, what he's saying here is that uh, these influences in our science, speaking on the, this uh, heredity and, and genetics and stuff like that. It's influenced by these Mars forces, but not the Mars forces, the bad Mars forces. Remember how he was talking about there's good aspects and bad aspects of these forces? Well, we're influenced by the bad aspects of the Mars forces in this sense. Uh, so when we're talking about heredity and genetics and genetic manipulation and things of that, that's why, uh, you know, everything's all screwed up like it is all this gmo nonsense and all of these things it's it's got a martial influence 
the, this Mars energy influence, the bad side of it, the demonic Mars side influence, right? Uh, and the moon forsaken one, uh, that the, these are the secrets that are locked up with the moon energy. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, uh, that's what he's talking about here. So he's saying that uh, we haven't even begun to understand the true nature of how this stuff works. And I suspect he's right, even here almost 100 years later. Let's read on, though. Venus and Mercury bring into the human being the karmic element that is connected more with the life of soul and spirit and comes to expression in his qualities of heart and in his temperament. On the other hand, Mars, and especially Jupiter and Saturn, when a man has a right relationship with them, act as liberating factors. They wrest man away from what is determined by destiny and make him into a free being. And I'm going to pause for a second. This is probably the most important thing you could take away from all this tonight. And keep this in mind. It's these interactions between the Mars, the Jupiter, and the Saturn forces that are the things that make us either free beings or slaves to the system, right? And these are some of the things that are being screwed with the most right now in our reality. So let's read on here. Biblical words in a somewhat changed form might be used as follows. Saturn, the faithful custodian of cosmic memory, said, Let us make man free in the realm of his own memory. Thereupon, the influence of Saturn was forced into the unconscious. Man's memory became his own possession, and therewith he acquired the sure foundation of his personal freedom. And I'm going to pause for a second there. Think back to what I was telling you about the Mandela effect in this concern before. Think about that. So, here's the thing. Saturn, the faithful custodian of cosmic memory, said, Let us make man free in the realm of his own memory. Thereupon, the influence of Saturn was forced into the unconscious. Man's memory became his own possession, and therewith he acquired the sure foundation of his personal freedom. Now, think about this. If somehow this Saturnian principle is being weaponized in a way, whereas our uh, possession of our own personal memory and our own personal freedom is being attacked, wouldn't our memories perhaps change? Hmm? Uh, and, and think about that in regards to this. I know it might be a bridge too far, and it's it's sheer speculation. But, uh, you know, we, we see so many weird things happening in this day and age, don't we? And many things that have to do with our personal freedoms being usurped. So I think it's it stands to reason to think that perhaps these Saturnian energies are being uh, weaponized or, or, you know, manipulated uh, to change things in the opposite direction here, away from freedom and liberation, as is the, you know, express uh, ideal of the new age we're supposed to be going in, this, this great awakening, right, the age of Aquarius. But instead, they're trying to do this great reset idea or capture us in uh, more of the Capricorn energies, so to say, rather than Aquarian energies. And I've talked about this stuff before, and I, I hope I'm not losing people on this. It's a different way of thinking, all right? And some of you may get it, and some of you may not. And You know, many of you probably think it's absolute nonsense, and you might be right. It might be, but what you need to understand is there's people who believe this stuff in positions of power and are totally trying to use it against us. And uh, perhaps 
You know, if we're unaware of it, they could succeed at that. But if we know what it is they're thinking and trying to do, well, we could be more resistant to that, can't we? So let's read on here. And we're almost done. Just bear with me for a few more minutes. The inner will impulse contained in acts of free thinking is due to grace vouchsafed by Jupiter. It would be in Jupiter's power to rule over and control all the thoughts of men. He is the one in whom we find the thoughts of the whole universe if we are capable of gaining access to them. But Jupiter has too, or but Jupiter too has withdrawn, leaving men to think as free beings. The element of freedom in speech is due to the fact that Mars too has been gracious, because Mars was obliged, as it were, to acquiesce in the resolution made by the other outer planets and could not exercise any greater coercion. Man is free, in a certain respect, in the realm of speech too. Not entirely, but in a certain respect, free. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So freedom of thought, freedom of action, freedom of speech. All these things are under attack right now, aren't they? Uh, so we see these, these are some of the energetic principles being invoked in the modern world, right? So uh, let, let's read on here and see what else Steiner has to say. And then I'll, I'll do my best to try to bring it all together. From another point of view, therefore, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn may also be called the liberating planets. They give man freedom. On the other hand, Venus, Mercury, and the Moon may be called the destiny-determining sorry, the destiny-determining planets. Venus, Mercury, and the Moon. Right. Uh, let's pause for a second there. So we have Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. These are uh, what we could call. How does he say it here? He calls these the liberating planets, right? And then he, he calls these the inner planets, Venus, Mercury, and the moon. He calls them the destiny-determining planets, or uh, the, how should we say, the, the lockdown planets, so to say. Uh, you know, the, the binding planets, I think, would be a better term, binding, rather than destiny-determining. Uh, because that, I think that has a negative connotation at this point when you're talking about liberation or, or you know, liberty. And then the other act, end of that would be destiny determining. Uh, I think he's using, you know, terms that uh, are a little more neutral, but uh, I would say binding would be a good term to use there. But let, let's read on. In the midst of all these deeds and impulses of the planetary individualities stands the sun, creating harmony between the liberating and the destiny-determining planets. The sun is the individuality in whom the element of necessity in destiny and the element of human freedom interweave in a most wonderful way. And no one can understand what is contained in the flaming brilliance of the sun unless he is able to behold this interweaving life of destiny and freedom in the light which spreads out into the universe and concentrates again in the solar warmth. Nor can we grasp anything essential about the nature of the sun as long as we take in only what the physicists know of it. We can grasp the nature of the sun only when we know something of its nature of spirit and soul. In that realm, it is the power which imbues with warmth the element of necessity and destiny, resolves destiny into freedom in its flame, and if freedom is misused, condenses it once more into its own active substance. 
The sun is, as it were, the flame in which freedom becomes a luminous reality in the universe, and at the same time, the sun is the substance in which, as condensed ashes, misused freedom is molded into destiny, until destiny itself can become luminous and pass over into the flame of freedom. And that is the end of the lecture, folks. So, the sun is the deciding factor between these forces, the forces of these inner three planets and the outer three ones, right? The, the forces of liberation, and as he calls it, destiny determination, or binding. Uh, so it's the sun that provides resolution to this. It's the balancing factor. It's the factor that uh, fuels all of it, takes, takes all of it in, and transmutes it, right? It transmutes the bad into good, See, it's the alchemical principle. It's the ultimate symbol of the alchemical principle, transmuting the bad into good. That is the key and the core to essentially what is spiritual alchemy. It's the transmutation of the bad into the good. It's taking the bad and turning it into a good, right? So all of these different planetary aspects here, the, these energetic principles associated with these planets, they all have good and bad aspects to them. And sometimes here in... Uh, the real world, so to say, in our physical world, we're handed some bad things, right? When when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. Uh, that's as the expression goes. Well, it's, it's the same basic thing. It's a very uh, simple concept, really. This is what alchemy is. Turn the bad into good. Make something useful out of something that has become bad here. <coughs> so that's the point here. So even though these forces can and have been and will be misused by certain people and you know steiner speaks to that here the sun is the ultimate balancer of that and that represents alchemy right uh, the alchemical transmutation of the bad into good that's what we all need to do we are all in that position where we can do that we just need the awareness uh, of this kind of stuff right we need to take the bad things that come into our life and turn them into something good. That's the true art of transmutation. That's what alchemy is about. It's taking the bad, turning it into good. And that's a perfect representation of it there. And we see how uh, many of these cosmic forces, so to say, uh, can be aligned and misused or used in certain ways. And it's, it's our prerogative to change the bad into good. Uh, that's what we're here for. That's what the... Uh, you know, experience of this life is, right? Uh, we live in this this uh, this place, this cycle of necessity and hardship, so to say. And that's, that's why we're here. We're here to learn to do that, to transmute the bad into good, uh, regardless of, of how it comes. Uh, so that being the case, we have the absolute and the attribute, the two ones from the Fibonacci sequence, once again, uh, combined together. Uh, th this is what it's about. It's about... Uh, transmuting bad into good making something good of, of what comes along right and we could choose our own path in this way so that that's the whole key here we're given free will and as long as we don't uh, abdicate that free will uh we're good right uh, we we have choices and you know it, it is a choice to abdicate our free will to somebody else and that's, that's, you know, one of the places that we, we are here today in our reality in this world. We're at a, a, a crossroads where we may need to make that choice. Are we going to abdicate our free will and just take the easy path and, and do what we're told and 
go along down this more Saturnian type of uh, uh, energetic principle, so to say, go, go down that road towards this whole transhumanist notion that we're being presented with? Or do we want to fulfill what it means to be fully human, right? Uh, do we want to embrace what it means to be fully human, to reach our full potentiality as human beings and, you know, uh, gain a more spiritual footing, so to say, rather than stepping further into hyper-materialism as, you know, is the choice that we're given here. So are we going to bind ourselves in this uh, uh, destiny-determining energetic principle, or are we going to step into this liberation principle where we're free and we can have the best of both worlds, so to say, right? Where we could have the best of both things. See, we could have excellent technologies without having a total dystopian hellscape. You know what I'm saying? We could have good technologies, good uses of technology, and still remain free and still reach our full potential as human beings rather than going the transhumanist notion. And and that's the whole point here. We, we have to make this choice. We, we could... We could have it both ways if we want it. And and that's the thing. Like, well, I shouldn't say we could have it both ways. We could have the advantages, right, of, of having technologies, but without losing our soul in the process. That's the better way to phrase that. Uh, so it's, you know, that, that that's the point here. Uh, we can advance in a more spiritual sense and still make life easier for ourselves it's not necessarily about taking a step back into the past and the ways of the past and uh going back out to uh you know farm the land like they did way back in in the old times where everything was done by hand and with hand tools and stuff like that that's not necessarily the case right we can advance in in both ways rather than just one or the other. And that's always the false dichotomy we're given. Everybody have a good night. Uh, I appreciate you listening. Take care.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.